Production. Recorded live. Welcome to Podcast Winterfell 238. It is the fan call-in show for episode 43 of Game of Thrones, or if you prefer, season 5, episode 3, entitled High Sparrow, written by the showrunners David Benioff and Dan Weiss, and directed by Mark Mylod. I think it's his first direction in this series. My name is Matt Murdick. I am from PodcastWinterfell.com. That's your one-stop place for all things regarding the podcast, like back episodes, contact and social media information, polls, and podcatcher links. And if you would, please leave me a review on iTunes or Stitcher, since that helps me stay more noticeable to those stores in other great Game of Thrones fans, or among other great Thrones fans like yourself. Uh, I don't have anybody to thank right now. I did some thinking in our initial reaction podcast, and I haven't had a chance because of my schedule today to look up and see if anybody new has reviewed on iTunes or Stitcher. But if you have, thank you. You will be included in the next podcast. Um, I apologize for not check, being able to check today. Uh, as we've done every year since we started podcasting about Game of Thrones here on Podcast Winterfell, uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to call in live to TalkShoe.com as kind of like a live radio show uh, to express your thoughts about each new episode of TV show on the Monday nights after a new episode airs. It's easy to participate at 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Uh, you get on your phone and you dial 724-444-7444. Uh, and then a automated voice asks you for the call ID, which is 118884 and the pound sign. You'll dial. And then if you're not a TalkShoe member, you just dial 1 and the pound sign when you're asked for a pin, and you'll be added onto the call as a guest. I do try and take all of the calls that I can get into uh, the podcast uh, in a feasible amount of time. And uh, as long as you obey these two rules, then you are going to be included in the podcast, which airs on Thursdays. First of all, no book spoilers, uh, and also a minimum of book comparisons if possible. We sometimes will have a special BR section if you're a book reader after we record, and we can talk about the differences in the books. Um, but most of the time, what I ask is that you just act like you're only watching the television show and evaluate it from, from that perspective. Uh, because you were really good, at, you book readers were really good at like keeping things like the red and purple wedding secret. Uh, so I know you can keep the secrets for this season uh, as well. So uh, also the other rule is that if you just keep your language uh, as far as uh, as far as vulgarities and that stuff to an extreme minimum. Uh, just think think of yourself if you're in a Disney movie. If you're like if you're in a Disney movie. Uh, for kids, and you're probably not going to be saying too many uh, words, and that helps me uh, keep things straight with iTunes and with Stitcher, as opposed to most of my regular podcasters who can't seem to do that. I ask the uh, the fans of the, or the fan call-in show people to do that. Uh, anyway, uh, if you break these rules excessively, then I got to dismiss you from the call, and I'll probably just cut you out of the co- podcast completely, and you will have wasted your time for nothing. So, uh, just obey those rules, and we'll all be good. Now, uh, as I was telling a new caller who just called in a few minutes ago, you get some time with me initially on your own, and then depending on how much time we have uh, to get all of our callers in, we may have an open discussion uh, with all callers where we can toss various subjects around. Um, I ask that during that portion of it, you please be uh, 
courteous to your fellow callers. Um, try not to interrupt them too much or or talk over the top of them. Or it's not you know it's not exactly like the whole water cooler thing where a bunch of people can talk at the same time and somebody will understand. It never comes across that way on on a podcast the same way it does at the water cooler. So uh, just remember, you will get your turn. Um, I hate to call on people like school kids, but I usually end up doing that anyway just to make sure that there's some order uh, in the way that we all talk about things. Uh, Also, uh, just be warned that I'll probably ask you some fairly fairly weird questions while you're on with me. Be prepared to answer those questions, like your rating of the episode on a scale of 1 to 10 especially during the initial section, and then if you stick around for the later section, I will ask you to describe the episode in three words. That's what we call it, three words, descriptions, and uh, perhaps come up with the best coupling of the week for the episode. And that doesn't necessarily have to be two people. It can be a pairing of people or things or concepts or, or whatever was most notable to you for the episode, what we call that section our brothel mates of the week. And I think that that is it in regards to the podcast now. Uh, let me tell you what I caught on my second watch of this episode, Season 5, Episode 3, High Sparrow, again directed by Mark Mylod and written by the showrunners David Benioff and Dan Weiss. Um, I want to kind of briefly retouch on what's going on with Marjorie. To be perfectly honest, when I watched this episode early this morning uh, for a second time, uh, I caught something that I don't think I really caught in the first, uh, but... Many people may have caught it in the first. I just didn't catch it myself, and I'm a little thick. So I want to make sure that I get this out there so that you understand that, yeah, Matt finally got it. Did you guys notice that Marjorie tells Tommen that she adores Cersei when they're in their bedroom scene, and then she tells Cersei that she absolutely adores Tommen uh, when she's talking to her with in front of the maidens? And, you know... That's kind of weird to me that she uses the exact same word because we all know how Marjorie feels about Cersei. Um, she's kind of fed up with Cersei. We got that last week in the whole perhaps thing. But now she uses that exact same word. She adores Tommen, uh, absolutely adores Tommen. And I wonder if that means that, you know, she, despite the power that that wields, that, that Tommen is really nothing more to her than, than just that. And I was always, you know... It had always seemed to me before that Marjorie, while she's definitely a player uh, and she's definitely in a position now to, to be a player and to try and manipulate Cersei this way, which is the whole reason she's saying that to Tommen. Um, but why use the exact same word that, to describe Tommen to Cersei? Because um, I always thought that Marjorie had a little bit more respect for the innocent. At least I, I felt like, you know, that even though maybe Sansa was a means to an end in, in some way, shape, or form, she still didn't want to hurt her. And I don't get the same sense that with Marjorie about Cersei that way. So using that word adores really made me um, not like Marjorie as much as I have in the past, uh, or the fact that she used it for both of them. And maybe it's just a crazy coincidence, maybe not, but it just, it just struck me really weird on a second watch. Um, I guess we could be thankful for the fact that no one died at Tom and at Marjorie's wedding. This is like the first wedding in, what, two seasons that somebody didn't die. Uh, does anybody think, now that we know that Sansa and Ramsey are going to get married, does anybody think that that will be the same way if they happen to get married? 
can we get through two weddings in one season without someone dying? Ooh, uh, I hope so. Uh, but as far as Sansa herself, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff out there on the interwebs in the last 24 hours um, and uh, in regards to her decision to go along with Littlefinger's plan and how people have, were not really uh, convinced uh, or don't, don't really feel that Sansa should have been convinced by Littlefinger's persuasion to go through with this. And I will agree that maybe on an execution level of the scene, it, it didn't really relay what I think the writing intended. Uh, but if you go back and you listen to the dialogue, um, I really feel like that there is a key line um, that you need to fix on. And it's not that there's no justice in this world, avenge them stuff. It's not the last bit. It's when he first approaches her uh, and that camera does that weird zoom in thing where he says, I won't force you to do anything. Don't you know by now how much I care for you? I feel like that's the most important line in that dialogue, actually, because this is what kind of psychologically sets Sansa at ease. I mean, even before she realizes it, she's still taking all of this in. Um, and Littlefinger has that way of overwhelming you anyway. But look at, look at how Littlefinger can back these words up. He helped arrange for Joffrey Baratheon to be killed. He killed Lysa in order to save her. Okay, well, to save himself too, but still, uh, who knows what Lysa may have thrown Sansa out the moon door if he had not acted, if he had not shown up and saved her. Um, so the trust in the proposal that Littlefinger makes here is established right there in those lines. And then I think that you have to think of the prospect of avenging her family is the icing on the cake and not the cake itself. Um, I don't know, uh, and people can say that the scene wasn't well executed. Uh, and I do kind of blame that jarring of the camera because I feel like that line about, you know, I would, I care for you was what kind of got covered up because you were just recovering from that jarring Zoom or whatever, or at least I did on the first watch. But going back and listening to it again, I cannot blame the writing uh, for this not working. Um, and I think even, I don't even think there's really that much of an execution problem, to be perfectly honest, because once Littlefinger walks away, you see Sansa kind of going back and she's playing everything into her mind, not just the last three sentences, but everything that he said is, is the feeling that I get from Sophie Turner's performance. Um, maybe that's just me. But I, I do feel like that um, it's really important uh, to consider um, that Littlefinger did do enough to convince her. But I, I think that people are looking for the wrong line of Littlefinger's convincing uh, to do it. I think that that was just what finally put the icing on the cake. I, I think it's the trust in him that she has established um, or that has been established with them in season four uh, that made that decision for Sansa possible. Now, as for the side, the other side of the Moat Kalen equation, uh, Brienne and Pod, um, we had a couple of, we hit a couple of the points about that in the initial reaction, like Brienne wants to go after Stannis. That's kind of a biggie. Um, I will say this. I really love the exchange of backstories. And we talked a little bit about it in our BR section of the podcast and the initial reaction. Uh, but for you non-book readers, just know that I, I just really enjoyed the idea of the backstories and what that meant for the story for Brienne. Um, for many people, I know that that's mainly dull stuff, it, like these kind of monologue exchanges. But I, I really like that stuff. I like 
character development, and this was character development. We got a huge bit of character development from Brienne in this. And I love also, um, Mike had mentioned the whole thing about direct, the director, Mark Mylod, uh, doing some interesting kind of holding the camera on certain places and that, which as a directorial style was um, interesting for Game of Thrones. Um, I'm not sure if it exactly fits for Game of Thrones, especially like that camera zoom in thing with, with Littlefinger and Sansa. Uh, but one thing that I really did feel that worked was him lingering on the fire that Podrick was fanning as uh, as they started. That was a great kind of uh, visual metaphor for what was actually going on between Podrick and Brienne. And I really loved that. Um, so there's there's something that uh, I don't normally comment because I don't know how films are made and that kind of stuff. I know how the score is made to them. Uh, I know whether I like a show, whether I enjoy a show or not. But I don't know about you know how the sausage is made so much. That's much more of a mic thing. But that was something that really stuck out to me about that scene. I, I love the because you do find all kinds of metaphor in, in George R. R. Martin's work. Uh, it's great to see the show attempting to do visually uh, kind of an equivalent in a way. Uh, not that I'm you know not that they're fanning the flames of love between Padraig and Brienne. Don't get me wrong. I'm not shipping Padraig and Brienne. I'm just saying that. You know their their relationship has has grown to a new level. It's starting to it's starting to heat up in terms of 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 getting something done, and it's thanks to those little backstories that they exchanged. Uh, from the fire, I guess we'll go to the cold and we'll go up to the wall. And guys, there's one last thing that I just kind of want to make about the these wall points. Uh, I know we've all been talking about Jon Snow and him executing Jana Slint. That's great. That's fabulous. Um, I really do hate to bring this up, but Jon Snow has now kind of joined an exclusive Stark club with the execution of Jana Slint. I mean, he is, I guess, a Stark by blood, um, although a Stark bastard, but in his case, he's still a, a Stark, and he has now beheaded someone as punishment. So we have to put him in the same club with Ned Stark who executed a Night's Watch deserter in the first episode of season one and then died later that season. Um, that club also includes Rob Stark, who beheaded, beheaded Rickard Carr Stark in the middle of season three and died later that season. Uh, ooh, isn't that a scary precedent? Uh, does John really want to be part of this club, just looking at it from that way? Um, what's even more interesting to me is, is that this happens, you know, it, well, I guess what's more interesting to me is that before this even happens in this particular episode, Stannis does kind of warn John of being too much like Ned and that that might not be a good thing. Um, I'll have to hope, I'll keep my fingers crossed that third time's a charm that maybe Jon Snow can kind of break this streak. Goodness, we hope so, right? Um, and right now, there doesn't really seem to be too much of a reason to suspect that Jon will die anytime soon. So I'm not really worried about it now. I'm just pointing it out that there are similarities between performing an execution and being executed yourself, at least as far as that family is concerned kind of scary. When I when I realized that this afternoon, I was just like, oh no, that's not good. That's not good. Somebody's going to have to talk me down off the ledge of that one. 
And that's my long-winded second watch point. Uh, I'll give you a rating for this episode. I gave it an 8 out of 10. I thought it was pretty marvelously dense, full of character development, had some great resolution to some stuff uh, from prior, such as Nasty Janos, and the budding of some new stuff, like Jorah kidnapping Tyrion, right? So stuff to look forward to, stuff to, to have wrapped up, um, and stuff to keep watching for the future. All right, and with that, it's time to bring in our callers. Finally, I'm sure they're tired of hearing me rattle on. So we will start with Tannis. Tannis, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Matt, how's it going? It's, I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing quite well. I am still stoked after last night's episode. I'm actually in the middle of watching it right now with subtitles on. Excellent. All right. Well, how about a rating for this episode? Can you put it on a one to ten scale? Um, I am going to give it a seven. I would give it an eight, but I got to admit, some of the the quick Raven email speed that they had and some of the quick traveling kind of took me out of it a little bit. But I tried to not that, let that bother me too much because it had a lot going on. And uh, being a book reader, some of my favorite moments from the book, and all that's all I'll say there. But yeah. A 7 out of 10. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, what would you like to talk about uh, in terms of a particular issue in the episode? Um, well, I guess I'll start off with my nitpicky stuff. Um, just knowing the geography, man, they got from Moat Kalen to Winterfell so fast. And <laughs> I tell you what, that Raven Scroll traveled from King's Landing to the Erie all the way to Winterfell. And uh, Roos is just, man, he's, he's got the quickest ravens in the land, apparently, and Littlefinger the quickest horses. I don't know. Littlefinger's gotten uh, around really quick before. Uh, I remember I had an issue with him bouncing all around Westeros in season two. Because uh, oh, one definitely. minute he's in the Reach, and the next minute, or or I guess he's in the Stormlands, and the next minute he's in Harrenhal, like, you know, within a single ep uh, or within, like, an episode or something like that. Um, they, their, their collapsing of time is, is not nearly as effective as their expanding of time with this television show. And, uh, I think as book readers, you and I can both testify to the fact that sometimes George writes time a little askew, but I don't really think that this is any kind of, uh, tribute to George in that way. I think it's just that they have a lot of story to tell and they had to really compress it this time. Right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And that, and that's totally forgivable. You know, I'm not trying to knock it or anything. Just yeah, being such a buff for the geography of Westeros, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I really enjoyed it. It was nice to see uh, Winterfell, even though it kind of looked like they were still building the set with all that fresh wood, I guess. But uh, yeah. one yeah. interesting thing that I noticed right when they uh, showed up at Winterfell, um, it was kind of a, a neat little, you were talking about um, – uh, film film tricks, camera tricks and whatnot, and the, and the zooms in and uh, little techniques that directors use. And uh, it was actually a, a buddy of mine who was new to the series was watching it, and he pointed this out. Uh, they were walking in with the ravens through the gates of Winterfell, and then as that was happening, they cut over to Theon, and he blurted out, hey, the, the guy that killed the ravens has to watch all the new ones come back in, and I kind of thought that was a strange analogy as Winterfell was being built back up. There was the shell of the empty man who uh, had it basically destroyed when he was a full man. Yeah, and how how do you feel about um, Theon's comfort level there? I mean, is he just being his normal reek, or 
did it seem to you like I, I was really taken by his recognition of Sansa. He, I mean, he turned away like he didn't want to be recognized. But uh, I, I, I don't know. Do you feel like that that hit home with him on some level? That you know, I, I almost feel like uh, you know he didn't recognize his sister Asha, uh, Yara, but yeah, he did recognize Sansa. Yeah, it kind of made me feel like, I don't know, Theon's just his own little, in his own little personal hell. I mean, he was kept prisoner there, and he had to grow up there under the Starks when conditions were great, and he actually had a great childhood for being a prisoner. Although I am one of the few that does sympathize with Theon for being a prisoner, man. That's got to suck. But, uh, yeah, uh, what was I saying? Um <laughs> Oh yeah, but now he's just back in Winterfell, and he's a, he's a prisoner again, and it's just it's this, and he's just a shell of a man now. You know, it's it's I, I feel I feel bad for him in a way, a little bit now, after all of it. And I really like the way Alfie Allen portrayed him in the episode today. I mean, if you notice, he didn't have a single line of dialogue; it was all just reactionary shots. And one thing that I really noted is just how much of a a twisted person he was able to make himself look like when he was serving Ramsey his meat. Like, you just didn't make eye contact and nobody paid him any mind. He was just, he was just treated so low. And it was just so, so strange to see the transition over the series, you know? Yeah, from, from the, the, the arrogant, uh, overly arrogant guy that he was before um, to the, the chest beating that he did in season two to the what he is now is a great transformation. Uh, and Alfie's just knocked it out of the park. Uh, what else about Winterfell or anything else you want to talk about? Um, well, RIP Jano Slint, that made me really happy. Uh, definitely one of my favorite moments in the series, for sure. I cannot stand that guy. And it's just so wonderful to see on screen the man that shoved Ned Stark's head down to the block get his head chopped off by that man. It's very man's bastard, you know. It's just, I don't know. There was something, I, I just, there was something righteous about it. And then just, it felt so cool, Stannis giving him the nod. I should also mention that I'm a huge Stannis fan. I am a Stannis guy through and through. Love that guy, all of his hard, hard uh, buttedness. And just, yeah, I, I, I love it. I just love that whole scene. Um, I was a little, uh, I was a little uh, impressed by the the Bridge of Atlantis. One last thing I'll, I'll say, so you can get to some other callers. But uh, I was really impressed by the Bl- Bridge of Atlantis and how well that CG was, and especially since they were able to do that uh, shot when they were approaching it, where they actually went over the top and got down into the market. I was I was very impressed by the, the beauty of that city. Yeah, I. I, I... I know that we all praise the visual effects department and they win awards, but um, they do things so seamlessly now uh, with that television show that it really feels, you know, it sometimes it's really hard to distinguish what's real and what's not. And uh, that was just an absolutely beautiful shot. I agree. Uh, we still got a couple of minutes. So let me ask you, uh, going back to the other subject, what were you feeling in terms of what I said about uh, Jon Snow joining that exclusive club, it it's it's got me frightened for the guy a little bit. You know, it 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 really does. Um, yeah, he's he's definitely following in the footsteps of uh, some serious Stark quote unquote mistakes. You know, I mean, I don't know, but uh, 
it's kind of weird because they were all all three of those Starks that uh, have done the beheadings now. You know, I'm counting Snow in that. Uh, they were all done for different reasons. Uh, Ned was simply carrying out a law that the person he executed very well know he broke and was very kind of accepting of his fate for, uh, you know, being so panicked and confronting a White Walker. Um, and uh, Rob's, Rob's was kind of almost, uh, when he executed uh, Ricard Karstark in the third season, it was almost the, the last little bit of his undoing. I mean, first his mother let Jamie go, lost a little loyalty there. Uh, then he married Talisa, lost a lot of loyalty in the, in the whole Frey side of things there without really quite knowing it at the time. But then with uh, beheading Rickard Karstark, I, I don't know, that just made so many northern men angry. And it's just, uh, I don't know, I, I can't really compare it to Ned's. But yeah, John definitely has a challenge coming up because there might be some uh, some thornies, I guess I would call them, uh, on Thorn's side there in the Night Watch that, might not be too happy with old Slinty losing his head, even though oh, John was... Oh, no. uh, you were supposed to talk me down off the ledge, Tannis. You were supposed to talk me off the ledge. Come on. <laughs> uh, uh, now, you've got some great points on uh, on that all. And, um, I, you know, like I said, there's no foresee... I don't foresee any uh, immediate threat to John. It's just something that, to, to attack him, you know, to stick in the back of my mind. I just worry about that a little bit. Um, oh no! Yeah, I, I never thought of that before. You mentioned it. You you got my brain going and worried like a like a mother at home after curfew, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and the other thing that I wanted to ask you about that particular scene is, and you and I have read the books and we knew the outcome that was coming. Yes. But they really sold me. I thought, oh no, are we going to have a, a are we going to have a show change here? I really thought that Jon Snow was going to give him mercy for a second. Yeah, you know, Matt, I was in the exact same boat. I was, like, when he hesitated, I was like, my face just dropped, and I was trying to not yell, are you kidding me? You just better do this right now. But I'm <laughs> sitting around with some NBRs, so I got to just, you know, keep it to myself. But I'm glad I get to share that moment of joy with my NBR friends now. We can all rejoice at the end of Lord Slint. But, yeah, they, it definitely, uh, they... They did very well uh, with that hesitation there. They really fooled me for half a second, and I'm glad you caught it, too. <laughs> I wasn't yeah, the only one. I mean, absolutely, yeah. It was something that really fooled me as well. Well, Tannis, i got to move on to my next caller. Uh, do you mind sticking around for the larger conversation at the end? I would love to, Matt. I will be here. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, that is Tannis, and we will next go to, I believe this is Kelly calling in. Kelly, how are you? Hi. Sorry. Hi. It says it says you are unmuted really quick, and then I didn't hear what you said. Oh, that's all right. You're fine. Uh, so, uh, Kelly, how about a episode rating uh, on a scale of 1 to 10 for this particular episode? I had the exact same as you. I had an 8 out of 10. All right. Uh, is there a particular reason why you are exact same as me for same reasons, for not same reasons? What do you got? It kind of like what you said. There was a lot of dense, like, uh, plot progression in, in every scene that we saw, and it would have been it would have been a nine. But I think because of that Valantis shot, as soon as we saw that, I looked at my boyfriend and I was like, "Oh, we're not getting any dragons because of that shot." I swear, it was so expensive. <laughs> ah, ah, I was kind of hoping we might see a dragon too, because uh, who knows where Drogon flew off to since he left Daenerys because she's bad. Oh, we're fighting. Oh, God. 
He loves no, her. He loves her so much. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll give you a break on. I'll give you a break on that one for this. Week, I know. Perhaps. But no. Yeah. The that Valanta shot I thought was beautiful, but it, if if we had to give up dragons, I would give it up for that shot. Um. But yeah, and it was there was funny parts. There was like some, oh my gosh parts. It was great. Yeah. So it definitely kept kept the uh, the high of the the new season starting going. It's great. I I agree with that. Um, is there a particular thing that happened on the episode that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I took a couple notes. Are you talking just about some of the things you asked, like for the uh, what were some? Oh yeah, John beheading uh, Janos. I thought that there was a good reflection or echo from Danny doing that in the very last episode, and that exact same call for mercy. You know the way it was coming from the crowd in Danny's scene and how she had to ignore it and do her duty. And then, you know, the same for John, like you could tell it just weighs on them that they know that they have to do it, but they, they still feel it. And I think there was some conversation last week about um, Danny's being very similar to Stannis in how she just has to execute these people. But I feel like if you look at their faces when they're doing it, you can really see that it weighs on them so much more. Whereas Stannis, it seems, he doesn't feel anything about it. Ah, I John, I and I think, yeah, I think John was the same way. You can see that it weighs on him to have to have that, take that action. Yeah, it did take a great amount of determination from him. I thought Kit Harrington did that moment really well um, in, turn, in in showing that, you know, uh, and especially after he had done it, you know, dealing with it right after he had done it as well. I thought that that was uh, very telling. Uh, but he did get the nat- the nod from Stannis for doing it, right? Uh, I, so he got a look. I, I went back and rewatched it, and it was like it was almost imperceivable. Like you couldn't see that he nodded, but I get, but it felt like he did, and I couldn't tell. Like I double checked, and it was like, did he really nod there? I don't know. Yeah, well, I I, I think that's just the beauty of of how good an actor <laughs> Stephen Delane is, is that you you get that sense whether he does something or not. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, Stephen Delane is an incredible actor, and I think sometimes undersold uh, as far as this series goes. Uh, what else did you want to talk about? Yeah, um, so Theon in Winterfell, and I just noticed, I did hear a lot of people talking about how confusing it was, the progression. They went right from Moat Kalen to Winterfell, and they weren't really sure if you were at Winterfell or not, and I was kind of like they should have put something up. Like they should have shown you that this was Winterfell somehow, some establishing shot, like the Godswood or something that we were familiar with. But they um, kind of were just showing rebuilding, I guess. And I guess we're right. supposed to take from that, that that was Winterfell. Um, yeah, I think that there was a lot of confused audience about that. But other than that, so I was really um, jazzed to see Theon, you know, walking around Reek, you know, being his alternate you know, his is like it's like his armor is to be Reek and if he has to be Theon and it's so hard for him to not be Theon when he's at Winterfell and it's I think seeing Sansa there made it even harder. I feel like it's so much torment for him to be at Winterfell right now when he's looking around and like like you were saying, like he grew up there and he saw what a great place it was to the point that he wanted to take it, even though he's an ironborn and they don't care about inland things. But and now all of this destruction around him and seeing the Boltons there, it's like, it must be like constant torment for him to know that, you know, he brought this there 
and, you know, kind of relating to the pain of Winterfell and, like, himself and saying, you know, the the violation of the Boltons and what they've done to him and what they've done to Winterfell. And he just sees Sansa come back and he's like, if anything like this happens to her now too, like it's all going to be his fault. Right. Yeah. I, and I, I, I've kind of got the, the fee on pains myself right now. You know, uh, I think Alfie Allen's doing a really good job with the show. Um, and like, uh, like Tannis brought up earlier, he didn't have a single line of dialogue and he didn't need it to portray everything we needed to know about what was going on with Reek. And um, I, I don't know. Are the Boltons building a better Winterfell? Is it going to look nicer? Uh, do you think by the time they get done with it? <laughs> Come on, let's, let's get into real fan stuff. Yeah. I wonder if like, you know, Roos is, he's got a very um, strategic mind and he knows that you have to have good fortifications and especially he was anticipating the North, to rise against them and you know he's not stupid he's gonna know that he has to be prepared and of course you know I'm, I'm very sure that he'll be very grateful to all those builders and reward them once they're done yeah sure <laughs> yeah i'm sure that they'll get i'm sure that they'll get paid uh handsomely or not so oh, handsomely yeah. uh, <laughs> i can't believe i just went there anyway uh yeah. <laughs> We we saw what happens when you don't pay your taxes. Imagine what happens when you do do what they ask you to do. Uh, right. I know. Once I know. Sorry. Yeah, it's tangent. But so, um, yeah, Winterfell. I'm so jazzed that they're back there. Uh, I loved seeing that um, handmaiden or that older woman say. And I, I thought about it and I just counted it out. I'm like, oh, it's not. I can't let that be my three words because it was it's four words. But it was the welcome home, Lady Stark. It was so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Also, what the, the the North remembers uh, was several several submissions on that for three words this week. Uh, that that uh, little moment really hit with a lot of folks <laughs> who who uh, tweet at tweet at the podcast anyway. So I can oh, imagine yeah. why. <laughs> My boyfriend what? and I both really fist bumped as soon as we heard that. That was awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, the. Uh, the thing that I would I would think uh, the question to ask is, what do we think that that means? Um, I mean, obviously, Bruce is well aware that he's having a, a problem in his backyard right now. Um, and he even set Ramsey straight on it. He said, you can't go around playing people no more. You've got to get married instead. Um, I, I, something I wanted to ask, uh, Ramsey's behavior is so un-Ramsey. I mean, that's... I mean, is Ram- do we think that Ramsey is that good of an actor, or is, is he just trying to please? We we've also seen him have that hang up about trying to please his father. What do you think's going on there? He's a sociopath. He's super psychotic, and I think he can. Um, but he's also been somewhat raised by his dad, you know, raised by Ruth. So he knows that there are certain roles you have to play, and I think he's playing a role in. I think we've all seen his true nature, and it's very doubtful that he'll be able to keep that under wraps for long. But I think he's playing this role, this, you know, gentleman, uh, a lord's son kind of role right now that he has to because nothing is set in stone yet, and they're just getting what they want. Um, But, yeah, it's super creepy to see him being nice. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, wait... I, I had to double check for a second. I was like, is this even the same actor? Oh, yeah, it is. It's absolutely you and Rin. Yeah, it, it's definitely him. Wow, that that was a great job because the actor 
playing a guy acting. Uh, that was fantastic. I loved it. Um, but uh, it, it is creepy. Anything else on the episode? Um, I think one more, one or two more things. Yeah, I had a, a couple things I want to bring up to see if other people in the group discussion have thoughts on it. But for just a couple thoughts that I saw while watching it in just kind of like vague thoughts, not sure if you're going anywhere, but I was watching the scene you were talking about and um, with Todd and Brienne when they were, when he was kind of building the little fire and she's telling him this story, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's a, we, you know, we have this um, association with fire, right? And I'm watching this going, wow, she's really opening up and telling this whole story about why she is so, why she was so devoted to Renly, which gives a supporting evidence for why she would be so passionate about uh, killing Stannis. And I was uh-huh. like, that's a, that's a pretty uh, convincing or um, moving story to tell. And then I was thought about the fire, and I'm like, who do we know sees visions in fire? And I was oh. super worried. I was super worried for Brienne because now who do we know sees visions in fire and who do we also know would be really uh, concerned if somebody was passionately trying to kill Stannis? <laughs> oh, no. You think that Melisandre might have been eavesdropping? I don't know. I, we've never seen evidence of it like, working that way, but it kind right. of had that, like, that's kind of conspicuous you know, that he's just building that fire and they kind of zoomed in on it for a minute and it could totally be nothing, but it, it also kind of looked a little foreshadowing to me. You're going to have to talk me down off a ledge. You're going to have to talk me down off a ledge. No, Cause I just thought it was a visual metaphor for the nice conversation going on. Oh no, you've wrecked me. You, you no. and Candace have wrecked me tonight. Oh man. No. Oh, that's a great thought, Kelly. I love it. Well, you said you had one more. Um, I think, oh, just the, yeah, so Cersei, when she was talking to, um, I don't know, she didn't give a name for himself, but the High Sparrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was interesting, because up until that point in the episode, Cersei is very demure. She's not actually super manipulative. She's a little catty when she's um, kind of talking about, oh, I don't know if she's that intelligent when she's talking about um, Marjorie. And but that's like the worst that she got. And otherwise, I'm kind of like looking at her going, Cersei, I'm kind of worried about you. Do you feel all right? You're, you're kind of mellow. And, but then she gets to, um, to the High Sparrow, and she's talking to him, and she kind of starts to light up. And it's almost like you can see the, the wheels in her head spinning where she's going from, like, I did not expect this guy to be the High Sparrow, and you don't even wear shoes. Like, what a mess you are. To listening to him talk and kind of the... The gears are turning, and she starts to think, "I can use this guy." Oh, and, can, yeah. and then, and then you see kind of a flash of the old Cersei and the the scheming that begins. And then I'm like, "Oh, there she is. <laughs> this looks familiar." <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Uh, I I really found, and I said this on the initial reaction podcast. I I think that everything she was doing was some kind of facade, uh, except for two points. Uh, one was when she was walking away from Marjorie or walking out the door and she heard the laughter. I think that was one that really hit her. Uh, the other one was when Tommen was basically you know, trying to be nice to her and say, don't you want to live in Casterly Rock? Thanks to Marjorie's manipulation. Uh, I think that was a genuine reaction, but I think everything else was a facade as far as I'm concerned. I think since um, 
the, the prophecies are really weighing on her, and uh, what we get is um, the fact that you know she's she's a little unnerved. She's not masking things as well as she would, because otherwise we wouldn't have seen that kind of emotion from any of them or, or yeah. in any of those situations, right? Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you can never know with her. If, you know, if, well, you can assume that she's being manipulative at most of the time, but it did kind of seem like she was not as pithy as usual. I feel like it's been kind of a, a a heavy episode for her. She's maybe feeling a little vulnerable, not necessarily knowing where her power is and how much she's going to have sway over Tom anymore. But she may have just been kind of laying back and letting things play out, but still yeah. you know, planning well, I, I to you, manipulate. I'll tell you what, the, the one thing you don't want to do is reach out to Littlefinger. There's a big mistake. Oh, yeah, you'll never... That will never come without strings attached. Yeah. She's gonna... <laughs> right on. All right, well, Kelly, i got to get on to my next caller, but do you want to stick around for the larger conversation? Yes, I've got some questions for everybody. All righty. Thank you very much for calling in. Thanks, Matt. All right, and we have a new caller calling in. Uh, who am I speaking to here? Uh, good evening, Matt. My name is Albert. Hey, Albert. How you doing? Uh, what, uh, I'm doing good, Matt. I, how are you? I'm good. Can you give me a rating of the episode on a scale of 1 to 10? I gave it a 7.5. 7.5. All right. Uh, how'd you come at that rating? I mean, were there any scenes that really hit you or uh, things you want to talk about in regards to the episode? Well... As for the rating, kind of the, one of the bigger things for me was that it seemed like the wall stuff and just kind of the stuff with John just seems a bit rushed to me. I mean, I just feel like boom, boom, boom. It's one thing after another, and we don't really have any buildup before something or really any time to process after things have happened. And I feel like something that's something the show has traditionally done very well that they haven't been doing with John this season so far. That and some of the geography stuff that Tannis pointed out, it just irks me a little bit as a book reader and as a fan of the geography and the maps and all of that. Right on. Very good. Um, what uh, what would you have preferred they'd done in terms of, you know, you said you felt that some things were rushed. What would you have preferred that they did? I don't know. Maybe just inserted a short scene in between some of, like, the John scenes. Like, a perfect example would I know we're supposed to be talking about this week's episode, but last week with the um, Lord Commander election, how he goes from being offered to be John Stark directly to being elected Lord Commander, and I just feel like those were two big moments for John that we didn't really get that much time to process, and I think that ruined the effect just a little bit. Gotcha, I gotcha. Well, what did you think of uh, John's rejection uh, of the offer this week? I mean, we knew that he had told Sam he was going to, but... Uh, I didn't really expect us to see that actual scene at all. Uh, how did you take that? I think it's perfectly legitimate for his character. Um, and I think it was the right move for him because because that is his place and he has made this vow. And I think that Stannis, honestly, will respect him more for it, even though on the surface Stannis wants him to go and rule Winterfell. Yeah, right on. Well, what else did you want to talk about in regards to this episode? Uh, I wanted to talk about some of the uh, 
Cersei and Marjorie back and forth, kind of starting with after the wedding scene, going all the way up to their breakfast confrontation. Like, um, just pretty much from the start of the season all the way till now, when Marjorie said, perhaps after talking to Loras, I have to think that she had something more up her sleeve than just simply using Tommen, but I can't think of what it is. I mean, what is she thinking to just threaten Cersei? It seems like almost blatantly, and I just wonder if she doesn't consider Cersei a threat anymore or if she has something in her back pocket. Yeah, that was kind of interesting because uh, last week, you know, when that whole conversation with Loris and Olivar was happening, you know, uh, Loris said, you know, if Cersei, if you marry Tommen and Cersei doesn't marry me, then you're stuck with her. And she's like, perhaps. And um, we're pretty sure that the whole thing with Tommen was in, in, in hopes to get that. But I'm not exactly sure what she hoped to gain uh, by kind of flaunting uh, Tommen's uh, number of times that he could go, uh, you know, in front of her. I, I'm not exactly sure what she hoped to prove, because that what you would think would make Cersei want to stick around even more, which is what I think the rest of the episode for Cersei was about. Um, I, I, it's a it's an interesting question. It's a very interesting question. Um, how do you perceive how do you perceive Marjorie? Because I've always kind of perceived Marjorie as being uh, at very least tolerant of of the somewhat innocent, like a Tommen or or a Sansa. But I'm not so sure now after seeing what's happening here. I think Marjorie has come to the point where we've heard that saying several times where courtesy is a woman's armor. Well, I feel like now not only is it Marjorie's armor, but it has kind of become her sword and that she has used her influence and her charm to get more and more power, which I think is her real goal. Well, she's queen now. I mean, um, outside of becoming outside, I mean, she's got to get an heir in order to be in Cersei's position and be a queen mother and rule actually on her own for a while. Do you? I mean, are you perceiving that we have this prophecy from or that Cersei had when she was a kid? I mean, are you going so far as to say that Marjorie perhaps might, in the long run, try to get an heir from Tommen and then? Uh, kill him the same way that Cersei had Robert killed? I wouldn't go so far to say that she would kill Tommen, but I definitely do think that getting an heir is her goal, because I think she sees that as a final step back in removing Cersei as a way to solidify her power in King's Landing, while at the same time removing Cersei from the equation. Gotcha. Right on. Right on. Well, I, I, can, I can see that for sure. Uh, I think that's a great point, Albert. What else you got? Um, and this harkens back to something that, season, that Cersei said in Season 4, and that she would burn House Lannister to the ground before she would see uh, Tywin and Marjorie fighting over Tommen and ripping the pieces. But right now, honestly, it seems like that's what she is doing with Marjorie, and that they are fighting over, and, over Tommen. And I wonder if uh, her view on that has kind of been influenced now by this prophecy and by Marjorie kind of moving in, that she's kind of lost sight of wanting to protect her children is more thinking more selfishly now. Yeah. I, I had the same question um, when the prophecy first came out. I was kind of like, well, you know, if, if protecting her children has been her concern uh, all this time, um, she's had opportunities to protect her children and, and not, uh, and, and, and not cause the things like, you know, the whole thing with Ned gave her a chance and all of that. 
And she has ignored those for lust of power. Um, so I think that that's a per- perfectly legitimate thing to make. Um, you know, history repeats itself, especially with somebody like Cersei, right? And I like the idea that you're saying uh, that you bring that back as kind of a, almost kind of a foreshadowing as to what's happening now um, and a, a self, self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think that Cersei, she has been in her position with her family being rich and her father being Tywin for so long that it's almost inconceivable to her that uh, she can just be brushed off if she loses the power that she has. Ah, now that's an interesting point. So uh, she is so comfortable with the position that her father put her in um, that she's perhaps ignoring the reality of it. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm, yeah, like I think she is aware of these other threats around her, but I think she drastically underestimates their abilities while at the same time overestimating her own abilities to overcome them or to just smash through them. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. All right, excellent stuff, man. Uh, what, anything else on in regards to what happened in this episode? I just had a uh, point or two about the short scene where Santa and Littlefinger are overlooking Mo Kalen and just okay. uh, some things about their conversation. And one of them was um, when Littlefinger was talking about revenge, I couldn't help but thinking if he was thinking about Cat as much, about Catelyn as much as he was thinking about Santa in that moment about getting revenge for her more than Santa. It's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. What do you think Littlefinger might be able to do in order to, to achieve that? I mean, obviously Sansa has to play a role in it. She kind of gets him in the door. Um, but then he's talking to Roos about, you know, aligning the Erie and the North again together, and he, he even goes so far as to say the last time these two were allies, you know, we threw the Targaryens over. He doesn't say it in those in those words, but that's what he's inferring. Um do you think, uh, I mean, what, what would be Littlefinger's goal uh, against the Boltons? Uh, I mean, just out and out kill him somehow from within eventually, or what? Yeah, I do think that is his eventual goal. And the way I see it, Littlefinger sees pretty much everyone except for Cat and maybe Sansa. Everyone else to him is just tools to climb the ladder. And that's now, you know, just like the Lannisters were, in the beginning than the Tyrells were to get Joffrey out of the way. I believe that he will use the Boltons, maybe not in the exact same way, but in a similar way. And then once he's done with them, he'll cast them aside and either find someone new and eventually keep doing that until he hopes to reach the top. Right on. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely a possibility. Um, what, do you, what do you think? Uh, let me real quickly, as I turn this timer off, hang on. Uh, what do you think in terms of of Littlefinger's long term goal? I mean, I mean, this seems this seems to me this whole bit with Sansa and whatever he's planning in terms of revenge with the Boltons seems like a, a short uh, or another step in a in a larger long term plan. Um, and and for me, I'll just ask you real quickly: compare it to Varys as well, because. It seems like, at least where the TV show is right now, it seems like that Varys is in a position to, you know, is kind of trying to get to his goal, even though Jorah seems to have interrupted that a little bit. Um, he's trying to get to his, his long-term goal, or is he? Is that just another step as well? 
and uh, compare that to Littlefinger. What do you th- is Littlefinger's goal to get on the throne himself, or is it just to to be the guy that's right behind the throne? What do you think? I I would hope that Littlefinger I think is realistic enough in his mind that I don't think he is pursuing the throne itself, but I think very much like Varys that his goal is to be the power behind the throne, and right now. I mean, he already has control of the Vale, and I think he's tr- going to try to get control of the North somehow over this short-term plot. But And I think his eventual goal is to, as he said earlier a few years ago, to have it all. I just don't think he's going to be the face of it all. Gotcha. All right. Very good. Well, uh... I'll tell you what, Albert, we're uh, we're up against it in terms of uh, in terms of taking new callers and and that. Would you want to stick around for the larger conversation? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, one thing I'm going to ask all our callers to do is that uh, if you have a mute on your phone when you're not talking, please activate that because that helps eliminate the background noise um, when we're all talking uh, and or when someone else is talking and and. I only have two tracks recording here. I have the track with my voice and the track with everybody else's voice. So if any one of the three of you are making noise in the background, um, it affects what the other person is hearing. Unfortunately, I can't track everybody's uh, call individually. I wish I could. If I could do that, I would, and then it would be real easy. I could just cut it all out in editing. But I'm going to ask you to edit yourselves and just mute yourselves uh, when you're not talking yourself. Um, We've got all of our callers back in now. And we're going to have a, a somewhat limited, because of my schedule, uh, group discussion. We're going to go. We're going to turn back to Tannis first, and we're going to let him address the panel with a uh, with a question. What do you got for the panel, Tannis? Well, let's see here. I don't know. I want to hear everybody's uh, kind of uh, reflections on what they thought of the House of Black and White. We didn't touch on that too much in the in the conversations here. Well, what, what did you guys think? Excellent question. And Kelly, why don't we go to you first? That was actually one of the things I wanted to ask everybody about. Um, so Arya starts looking around and, see, and she says that she sees all of the faces of the gods up there, of the different gods. Did anybody notice um, or figure out what some of those were? I know you saw the weirwood face and then there was like a dancing god with like... Um, like, I thought maybe that was the drowned god with seaweed hanging off his arms or something. I, I think really it was. Out some... Yeah, that's what that one was. There was also a, a lion and a ram. I couldn't figure out, was that Dothraki? But I didn't think they had a... I, I was thinking the, uh, the 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 ram is either a nod to, like, it's uh, the black go- the black goat of Cahor, which is yeah. a death god of the city of Cahor, which is kind of more of a book thing, but it just could be a nod to that, just kind of adding some wall decoration for some of us deep book fans. But I was also thinking that Ram could be the god of the Lazarine. The Lamb? Is it Mary, the Lamb people? Yeah, Mary Mazdor's people. Yeah, I'm not that, too sure, but that was god. just another thought. Yeah. And I didn't um, remember, was the lion, the doctor, I know Danny wore a lion in the book, so I wasn't sure if that was Dr. Aki or not. I'm I'm not too sure on that. I don't recall any sort of lion god. I mean, there was like a legendary lion, but I, there might it might be kind of some sort of 
deity of death for the Dothraki. I I can't really remember though, to be honest. When when we visited Boss uh, or uh, Vestel Roth, what's that called? This the the uh, the the Vestothrak. Yeah. When we visited that, was there a statue out front when we when we visited that back in season one? I can't remember. Um, yeah, there was just the two horses. Okay. So I I think. I think what it's referring to is a deity called the Lion of Night, which I think is a god kind of from Ashai in the Shadowlands and way out east out there. Wow. All right. Awesome. Uh, I, I thought oh. I saw I saw I saw the, the, the burning heart as well. Did we see that? Oh yeah, they had a nice close up shot on that. That was kinda cool how it was glowing yeah. from the inside. It was like, yeah. oh the House of Black and White took a little more time with that one, I guess. And the, it was nice uh, with the shrine inside it, like where you could put the candles was inside it. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. Um, the uh, I I do know that Arya mentioned the drowned god. Um, which one were you guys saying that it was? Because I didn't catch. I thought the drowned god I was Strachan. Maybe no. It kind of seemed, I think it might have just been the one that looked like it was built out of driftwood and dried seaweed. That really strange. Okay. Almost tree-like looking one. It's, that that would kind of make sense, built out of driftwood. I mean, I don't know. I think, yeah, it has like a round head. If that if you recall that one. Okay. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, uh, so you've got that with the, with the gods. Uh, Albert, let's go to you with any impressions of, uh, of the house in black and white, since that was the original question. Yeah, well, this is more kind of a side question, but I'm just wondering, what is actually in that pool? Is it like some kind of magic or poison? or um, Because if the faceless men are assassins, I, it just, I'm, when I see that, I just really am curious about what it is. I, one thing that I really enjoyed about uh, what Jockin's description of what they were doing, uh, he, he, he told Arya uh, that it was a gift as well. Um, and I'm not just re- specific, specifically referring to the pool, but um, it almost seems like to me that what, what's being implied uh, by by no one or Jockin or who whatever we're going to call him that um, that the faceless men believe that death is a mercy, uh, whether they're assassinating someone or allowing someone uh, to commit assisted suicide or, or whatever you want to do it. Um, they're almost looking at it. It, it. it almost appears like there's a philosophy that it's a mercy to me. Um, what do you, What do you think of that, Albert? It, does that seem on par? Yeah, that does make sense. He said it was a gift, and yeah, the the many faced gods and his gift. I think is what the exact words that Jocken used, or something along that line. Yeah. So uh, I I, I kind of took that impression. Um, we didn't really get, Tannis, we didn't get your impression of uh, the House of Black and White, so let's wrap that up with you. I, I was very impressed with the set design. I really liked uh, Arya's interaction with the uh, the really quiet girl, the, the blind girl that she ends up washing the body with at the end. Um, that that interaction where uh, I guess they were playing what Jockin referred to as the game of faces, where mm-hmm. Arya just kept on saying she was no one. and It was just... Oh, and that, of course, oh, my gosh, guys, that, of course, leads to that scene where Arya's dumping her clothes that we've seen her been wearing forever into the water and along with the coin. And 
then that the tears that come into Macy Williams' eyes during that scene when she's holding Needle, and you can just tell that visions of Winterfell and Jon Snow are going through her head, and, oh, like, that that really got to me. I thought, that that little girl, she's going to have quite a career ahead of her. She's amazing. That scene really just, oh, it put a tear in my eye. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> yeah, I, every every just about preseason interview, I, it seemed like Maisie was always ready to tease the fact. I get the I get new clothes. It's the first time in three seasons I've had new clothes. I love it. Uh, but you know, but she is a very gifted little actress. And uh, the whole the whole thing was really accented to me by uh, the thing with Needle was accented by the the playing of the Stark theme, which I didn't know if we were going to hear much of at all. In fact, I think one of my predictions was that it wasn't going to be heard. Uh, very much this season, but we got it like we got it with Sansa, and we got it with uh, we got it with Arya both this week. So uh, that was a nice uh, touching emotion to it too, because the Stark theme always reminds us of Ned and of Rob and the Red Wedding, and and makes us mad and makes us sad. And um, yeah. and then just the, the connection. I mean, the fact that the writers expect television show people to or television show watchers to remember that this sword was given to Arya uh, in episode, what, two of season one? Yeah. We're now, we're now more than four seasons gone, (laughs) but it does make, it makes it, but if you do recall that stuff, then man, it does make it very emotional. Um, Kelly, let's go to, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kenneth. Oh, I was just going to comment on the sword thing. Yeah, I think they did a really good job making that impactful because I have a lot of non-book reader friends that, yeah, remembered from that scene. And, you know, not super fans of the show like me, but just remembered seeing that scene like, oh, John gave her that sword. And, yeah, I just, bravo showrunners. Good good job on making that clear throughout the entire series. i got to give them credit for that. That's all. Absolutely, absolutely. Kelly, let's uh, let's go to you for a question. Uh, just a quick follow-up on the House of the Undying. The, um, I don't think the Waif was blind. I've heard that a couple times, and I don't think she was actually blind. Does anybody have any proof, or what did, what did you? What made you think that she was blind? I was just trying to not refer to her as the Waif, I guess. Oh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah, well, I mean, no, no, it's not a huge deal, um, but I was just trying to make it more clear. The yeah. blind seeing girl. Yeah, she 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 was an acolyte. Um, and yeah. you know someone someone who you you could just seems like she's maybe a couple of rungs ahead of May, of uh, Arya um and i don't know when she the way she walked in when they were playing the game of faces she walked past her it was almost like she was zeroing in on her voice is why i was under the impression that she was blind uh, did anybody remember noticing her out in the um, the main room earlier, because I think she was walking around not at all using a stick or anything. Like, she, And then that's not necessarily proof either, but that didn't correlate so much with being blind later. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, I do we know whether it's... I, I mean, we don't know what's going on in that place. So is it possible that uh, at some points she is blind, at some points she's not? Um, it's, it's yeah, it was just, it definitely was unclear, and I've heard that um, that thought that she was blind before as well. Um, and she's she's called the waif on IMDb, which is why I thought I would say <laughs> that's her her character okay. name. 
Yeah. Well, I just uh, peeked real yeah. quick, and you're right. Earlier on, she's not walking through with the stick. She's carrying a bucket. Right. So I, yeah, because I, I remember seeing her and be immediately thinking, is that her? Yeah, because she's, was, um, you know, you always look for people, and you're like, maybe, maybe not. But then, yeah, we saw her later, and I thought that, that was her. So when I looked her up, and then she was called the waste. I, I cheered a little bit. And, yeah, I didn't think, um, I think the, the, the stick, the rod that she had was more, I think she planned on hitting Aria with it, <laughs> you know, and it wasn't necessarily an assistant tool. Yeah. Um, it's can, I just, <laughs> can I just say, and uh, I don't know, uh, Albert, are you a book reader? Yes, Matt, and I, I just finished the tandem read with you guys like a month ago. Okay. Awesome. Um, for you folks in the chat room who are not book readers, let's, uh, if you will give me 15 seconds to say something to everybody here. Here we go. Um, I feel like if that was a tribute to the blind to the blind acolyte that she saw, just just that moment was a tribute to the blind acolyte that uh, in, in when they were playing the game of faces was a tribute to the blind acolyte that she saw in the first couple of aria chapters. Okay. Um, I, I really do feel like that that was that was meant to imply that it was part of the training, and, and we may not get that in with aria um, this season, and I, I think that they wanted to include that for book readers. That's what I think, but I'm not sure. I think that's, I yeah, pretty reasonable. I was just hoping people weren't too concerned about or were, were confusing later scenes with this scene. Yeah, well, I, that's what I'm saying. I don't know if we're going to get later scenes like that. That's, so okay. I think that's why it was thrown up there. Okay, um, gotcha. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, so then, okay, moving on. <laughs> I did have one other thought is about Arya in the, in the house being dying. It was so... Um, beautiful to be in Arya's shoes because for the most of the, the show, we're not, um, we, you know, we don't see what's in the, in the letters to the, you know, in, that the Ravens carry. We don't know what everybody's schemes and plans are. But in this scene, in all of these scenes with Arya, we're like exactly in the same place she is. She's asking all the questions we want to know the answers to. And you have such, you know, empathy for her because this is like the one character in the book who doesn't know anything, or in the show, excuse me. In the show that doesn't know as much as just as much as we do, and it's, it's a great place to be at with a character like that. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, Albert, I'll, I'll I'll go to you and then to Tanis for any final thoughts on Aria. Well, I did want to ask the panel: Do you think Aria is fully committed to this endeavor? Because he, even the uh, even Jackin says says, are you willing, asks her if she's willing to serve, and she says yes, but then she, of course, keeps needles, so is she really committed to this idea of being a faithless man, or is she doing this just all to eventually get revenge on the people that hurt her family? That's a great question, and let me, uh, I'll go to you, Tannis, to answer it first, and then we'll circle back around to you, Albert, at the end to to answer it for yourself, but I want to add this little stickler to it, and that is... Albert's question plus how do we feel that she should be? Should she have left the sword behind? Should we be concerned with that? Um, just because, you know, uh, I mean, is, is it something that, are we glad that she left the sword, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, go ahead, Tense. Um, I guess I am glad that she left the sword because I, I want Arya to get her revenge. I want her as a character to go out there and have the skills and the abilities to to get the revenge on the few remaining people on her list. 
because I, I, I could really care less if the House of Black and White as an establishment in the story gets, gets more, you know, people on their side. It's, it's kind of inconsequential to me. So, yeah, I want Arya to use them for her own gains. Hopefully it doesn't cost her really much and she just kind of has to go through some training and doesn't get found out or anything. But um, I, I want her to use the House of Black and White to her own means and ends, yes. Yeah, and and but has her action um, jeopardized her ability to be trained? Do you think? I, I don't. I don't know. I kind of feel like Arya's a different breed than they might usually get in there. You know, she's mm. been through a lot. We've seen her disguise herself over and over and over again and be kind of no one. So I I kind of feel like she is a little better at this than they're giving her credit for right at the beginning. Of course, they're just going to, you know, treat her like a newbie right off the bat. That's how things like that go. But um, I, I, I really just, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that's how I feel about that. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Kelly, how about you, Aria and Needle? Uh, first, I want to thank Tannis for continuously saying the House of Black and White. I constantly call it the House of the Undying. I get so confused. House of Black and White, yes. The, um, yeah, the, I feel like the story really um, focuses on these characters for a reason, and I feel like there's so many characters in this world, and why are we following these characters? And I feel like if they don't have that arc of coming back to their roots or something satisfying like that, there would be no reason for the camera to be following these specific characters. So I think we, we love, you know, that John and, and, and Sansa and these other and Rickon and Bran are still alive and we want them to keep their Stark in their heart and I feel like Arya we want that for her still because it seems like that's the most threatened for her and yeah I want her to keep her Stark you know even if she has to bury it deep down in her heart in order to get the uh, to achieve these ends that she's trying to meet and if she has to go through all of these things and bury this this Arya Stark person free for a little bit I'm glad that she didn't permanently, you know, um, absolve herself of her identity in order to achieve these goals that she set for herself. Very good. Uh, and before, Albert, before you uh, answer your own question, let me just say um, Arya's killings thus far have been pretty much uh, crimes of passion, but we did see an evolution in season four by the time she got to uh, killing uh, one of the guys from Hall, I can't remember, not Biter, but Rorge. By the time she got to killing Rorge, she was pretty cold and calculated pretty quick. So um, I don't understand why, I mean, I love the sentimentality of, of Needle and everything. Um, and I don't want her to become a cold-blooded killer. I do want her killings to be crimes of passion. So I guess I'm happy that she left the sword. I'm sorry, Albert, go ahead. Well, my feeling is that I like what the sword symbolizes and that it is her holding on to the very innermost core of her identity. And I know fans are very emotional about Needle and the connection between Arya and Jon, but personally, I don't think that she needs to keep the sword itself to keep the core of her identity. And I think that at some point down the road, she'll get to the final trial or the final test to become a faceless man. And this keeping the inner core of herself will impede her from doing that, but I think it'll also be 
but pushes her back to Westeros as the story condenses towards the end to do to get the revenge that we all so desire that she gets. But I don't think that she needs the needle to do it. And so I think in the short term, it's a risky proposition. Very interesting. Good, good way to put it. Um, let's go to, I, I, let's go back to you, Albert. One more question. And then I'm sorry, guys, I'm going to have to wrap this up because of my limited time today. Um, one more question for the panel, sir. About the House of Black and White or anything? Oh, anything. Okay, well, I would go to up to the wall to um, Stannis, and Stannis' position, I mean, when he originally said that he was going to come up to the wall, he said he saw a battle in the snow and that he was going to go, and Melisandre told him it was more important than fighting over the Iron Throne. But at this point, I'm beginning to wonder if he actually cares about the White Walkers or even knows about them, or if he just thinks the Wildlings are a threat. And so I would just ask the panel, I mean, did he misinterpret a vision, or was it never his intention to fight the White Walkers? Or kind of what is his position with, in relation to the threat that the uh, that John sees the Night Watch, the Night's Watch having to deal with? All right, excellent question. Oh, oh, sorry, go for it. Um, yeah, I think he... Uh, I think he's just uh, misdirected. I think he's like, all right, yeah, I need to go to the north to be a king. And we all know kind of the big picture is the White Walkers, but what he sees is like, I need to help the realm, so I'm going to go take out the Boltons. That's what needs to be done. I mean, not with that gallant sort of (laughs) flair to it, but (laughs) he's just trying to get the job done. And he's, he's, uh, although he's into, you know, his, his roar and, you know, looking into the fires. Um, I feel like he's getting a little more distance from that as of late, and he's becoming a little more of a a politician or general. And uh, I kind of think he needs a little more of that mystical Stannis back to see the big picture. So I'm a Stannis guy. I want him to pull through and kill some White Walkers, so hopefully Melisandre can help him see that. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Where is Melisandre, Kelly? I mean, is she just off screen? Is she just you know, looking into a fire somewhere or is she, or is she gone? I think she's still there. I think she just wasn't pertinent to the scenes that we saw, but yeah, it was kind of an odd, um, but yeah, we didn't see her. We didn't see Danny or was it Jamie? Yeah. We didn't see those whole storylines, but yeah, it was weird that there were scenes where she could have been, but wasn't. Could be something, could be nothing. Maybe there's some kind of union rule that you can only see one red priestess at a time in an episode. Maybe, or maybe she was having a hot, maybe she was having a hot bath. You know, like her, her chance. <laughs> uh, Albert, answer your own question, sir. Well, I mean, I do think that Stannis has lost focus of what should be the overall goal, but I can't deny that. I like where he's going in terms of beating down the Boltons just because they've been a thorn in all of our sides ever since the Red Wedding, and I think we all want to see them go down. But I don't know that I want that to be at the cost of the whole of human civilization in Westeros. Yeah, because if that's the case, then the Boltons are just taken out anyway, right? I mean, Exactly. Uh, Kelly, I'm sorry, I, I jumped you on the actual Stannis question, so uh, you get the last word. Oh, by the way, nice prediction of seeing Jorah at the end of this episode. Uh, I swear, prediction last week. as soon as I saw it on screen, I was like, everybody's going to think that I watched the leaked episodes, but I didn't. 
<laughs> I believe you. I believe you. I, I believe you. Thank but, you. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, about Stannis, I think he, he may not be overlooking what's happening north of the wall. He may think that he needs to secure the north because if they're all so concerned with infighting, then they're not going to be fortified. If they're all fighting each other, like, he's, that's what the fighting um, north of the wall was that John was trying to prevent, was that you're just going to create more soldiers for the army of the dead. So he needs to, you know, get the round together, you know, get your house in order and make sure that they're ready because winter's coming and that means that, you know, this this north of the wall um, threat is going to be serious and everybody needs to be not fighting each other at that moment. So it, it may not necessarily be that he's ignoring it. It could just be that he's doing what he can in the realm of men that he's concerned with. Excellent. All right. Uh with that, folks, we need to wrap this portion of the podcast up and move on to three words. This is the part of the podcast where you try to describe the episode in three words. And uh, since we've got a couple newbies on here, I'll, I'll uh, try and stall for you. First, I need to acknowledge some three words that I got either late or that I missed last week. It's happening to me a lot lately just because of the schedule that I'm keeping. But uh, first of all, uh, via email, Words are wind, uh, which uh, they're, actually their email address spells it backwards, but it's words are wind. Uh, it says political, political threats and sycophants. Uh, and then also from Taryn, uh, I love this one, bronze Disney outfit. <laughs> uh, and uh, via tweet, uh, at John McGaskill said, Drogon says goodbye. Uh, all right. So now. I, I've stalled as long as I can on the three word stuff. Uh, we can try just a little bit more for for uh, ten, uh, for our other guys. Kelly, give us your three words. You there, Kelly? Oh, sorry, I had myself muted. <laughs> Thank um, you yeah. for doing that, though. You're welcome. Um, I had the North Remembers as well, uh, but as a backup because I knew that one wasn't uh, was very popular. Uh, I'm going to hyphenate Lady Sansa and go with my original of Welcome Home, Lady Sansa. Oh, okay, with a hyphen. We'll, we'll give yep. you that. Uh, <laughs> all right, Janice, uh, it's time to pick on you, sir, and can you come up with a three-word description of this episode? Um, uh, n- naked Elvis Septon. <laughs> that works. That actually works. That's, that's great. That's great. Uh, and Albert, uh, you know how this business works, perhaps. I don't know. If you just joined us during the tandem read, maybe not. But try to describe the episode in three words, sir. All right. Well, this is referring to Santa and Arya's long-term arcs in revenge, but best served cold. Okay. Right on. Very good. And uh, mine... Our heads are rolling. I announced it on Twitter right after the episode airs, but literally, Jeno uh, Slint's head's rolling. Uh, figuratively, you've got the High Septon's head rolling, and uh, I'm pretty sure that some book readers' heads were rolling last night as well. Uh, but that's a conversation for another time. You can catch it at the if you are a book reader, you can catch it at the end of our initial reaction after the end music. Now here's some more tweets and emails and blogs. Uh, submissions as well, which you don't read during this portion of the... I just add those in later. 
Brothel mates of the week. Now, this one is uh, kind of weird. You pick the best coupling of the week. It doesn't necessarily have to be two people. You can do two people if you wish. Uh, it doesn't have to be any kind of shipping thing. It can just be like a person and an object or a person and an idea. You know, say like maybe, I don't know, Jon Snow and, and Honor or something like that. You know, it can be any kind of abstractions that you want it to be. It can be uh, showrunners and uh, uh changes, I don't care, uh, whatever you want to do. Uh, but here are a couple that I missed from last week. First, via email, words or wind spell backwards had done Jon Snow and round voting chips. Uh, and uh, via a tweet, we got uh, from John McCaskill, uh, at John McCaskill, we got, what is it? Oh, Jock and Hagar and Jock and Hagar in disguise. All right. Thank you very much for those. <clears throat> So, uh, Kelly, I've got to pick on you again just to make sure that uh, Albert and Tannis have enough time to, to come up with some for themselves. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I got a good one. I was really excited about it. Uh, Tyrion and peeing off of high places. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the wall, the, the, the big bridge. Yeah, he, he likes doing that. He definitely does. Imagine how much fun he used to have at Casserly Rock back when he was a kid. Uh, <laughs> great. I'm surprised, uh, I'm surprised he didn't pee out the moon door. <laughs> uh, you know what? He probably would have if it wouldn't have got his head cut off there immediately. Uh, but he he had a hard enough time just getting Braun to get him out of the first situation. Uh, <laughs> he, sky cell? I bet he did out of a sky cell. I'm sure he did. You know, definitely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely had to. Uh, I'll give mine, too, to just buy Albert and, and Tennis a little bit more time here. Uh, mine are characters and characters that you never thought would cross paths. They like uh, Sansa and the Boltons. Uh, I would have never seen that coming uh, in, in, you know, watching the TV show or reading the books. So there you go. Um, Albert, I'm going to go to you. I'm going to pick on you this time. Uh, uh, best coupling for this episode. All right. Well, mine is Kyburn and his friend under the sheet. Wow, yes, and uh, we're all in agreement. We think that's the the good old mountain there uh, having spasms, right, I guess? Anybody yeah. have any disagreement? Yeah, that was pretty fishy. <laughs> yeah, what a rat. What a rat. Oh, goodness gracious, I've gone there. Uh, and Tannis, how about you? Brothel Mates of the Week for your best coupling. Well, my Brothel Mates of the Week are Bruce Bolton and Cersei Lannister for the reason that they're uh, hanging out in the club of dwindling loyalty. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a very good one. And here are some uh, or here are some more via Twitter, blog, email, etc. All right, guys. Sorry to have to cut this so short this week. I, I've got to be I've got to be somewhere in 20 minutes. So um, the uh, let me just do a real quick goodbye and then I'll end the call. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for taking the time. I'm sorry for the kind of abbreviated uh, format we had to take tonight. It's due to my schedule. Uh, things are just weird for me now that I, I, I work playing in places all over the place. Anyway, uh, let's get to our callers. And uh, for any final thoughts about the episode, High Sparrow, and if they have an Internet presence, feel free to uh, you know, share it if you wish. Let's see. Let's go with you first, Tannis. You are our first caller. Thanks again for making the first call into uh, into Podcast Winterfell's fan call-in show this week. A pleasure to have you on. Love your thoughts 
Um, you speak much better than me. So uh, uh, if you have an Internet presence, feel free to plug it. If you don't, that's fine. And any final thought that you have about High Sparrow, sir? Um, all in all, a great episode. It's still like, even though there was this climactic moments, I'm just uh, waiting for the later episodes that this one is uh, building a great season for. And um, I am very uh, stoked to be on, Matt. Thanks for having me. I've listened to every single book podcast you've done for, yeah, and finally got the guts to call in. And thanks for taking my call. It was good to be on. And if anybody wants to follow me on Instagram, follow me at, at Tannis Baratheon or follow me on Twitter at Tannis Gale if you feel like it. If you're in the Washington area, Kitsap or King County area, I do stand-up comedy, so I will be throwing up dates on there every now and then. Oh my God, you're Thanks. so serious for a comedian, dude. You're awesome. That's great. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks <laughs> great thoughts, sir. Thanks for joining us. And we uh, go to Kelly next. next. Yes, sir. Uh, we go to Kelly next for a uh, a little recap or final thought on High Sparrow. Yeah, I just really liked watching every everybody move their their plots and push them a little bit to accommodate the new changes that are happening. I think you can't can't anticipate that anybody's going to be doing anything that you expect. Great, um, especially like you said, Marjorie. I think you got to keep your eye on her. She may not be as uh, as wholesome as we think. Um, if you want to look me up on Facebook, um, I think Tim friended me the other day. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, but I'm Climb a Wall. If you do Facebook and they do the dot .com slash Climb a Wall, look me up on there. Um, so maybe send me a message so I know who you are. I kind of didn't know who that was. That was pretty funny. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so then, um, but that's about it. I'm in the Washington area. That's awesome, by the way. I'm probably going to come stalk this, this tennis guy. <laughs> right on. Oh, no, there'll be late-night sessions of talking about A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones <laughs> happening in Washington. That can only mean it's bad for the rest of the country, right? No. no. It should be all good. should be all good. And finally, we want to thank Albert for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for making your first call into the podcast Winterfell Fan Call-In Show. Very nice of you to take the time to do so. And uh, if you have an internet presence, feel free to plug it. Otherwise, final thought about High Sparrow, sir. Oh, well, overall, it was a great episode. Got some good character development, and we're building and building, and I can't wait to see where it goes. I want to thank you, Matt, for uh, taking my call. Like Tannis, I've been listening for years, it seems, and I got the guts to call in for the first time tonight, so thank you for being a great host. Anyone out there that wants to follow me on Twitter can follow me at a godless key at twitter.com, and uh, that's it. Thank you, Matt. I know you. I've seen you on Twitter. Thanks for thanks for calling in. Oh, appreciate it very much. And uh, thanks to all of the callers who have called in so far this year. Why don't you be one of them next year by dialing or next week by dialing seven two four 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 seven four 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 at nine p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and uh, then you'll dial one one eight 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 four and the pound sign. And finally, if you're not a TalkShoe member, simply dial one and pound, and you'll be added on as a guest. And Axel Foley is going to tell you how you can complain to me about how short this podcast was. See you later. <laughs>